Hey, SBCC family, Mariah here. We are so thankful that you chose to join us today as we continue to dive deeper into the Apostles' Creed. But before we get to that, a couple quick notes. First of all, wherever you are in the world, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your community and want to contribute to the work that is being done here and will continue to be done here, you can always give at southbendcitychurch.com backslash give. Second of all, this weekend we shared a great opportunity for people who are new to our community. So if you consider South Bend City Church to be home, you consider yourself to be new, and you live in the South Bend area, we would love for you to join us after the second gathering on October 2nd as we have a new to South Bend City Church tables group. That's right around 12.15 Eastern Standard Time, if you didn't know. And there you'll be able to meet the staff, ask questions that you might have, and meet other members of our community. Unfortunately, there will not be childcare provided at this one, but we are hoping to offer it for future meetups if possible. If you plan on attending, please RSVP to info at southbendcitychurch.com just so that we can make sure to have food for you. And for those that listen each week and consider South Bend City Church to be home but live far away, just know that there are ongoing conversations about how we can provide similar opportunities and connection for you. And whether you're right here in South Bend or whether you're across the globe, we just want you to know how honored we are to have you as a part of this family. All right, let's jump in with Jason as we talk about God the Father in week two of our series, Old Creed, New World. Hey, good morning. My name is Jason. Uh, I'll echo what Karen and others have said, which is uh, I'd love to meet you if you're new, uh, catch you after a gathering maybe, but we're really honored that you're here. Uh, last week in our gathering, we walked out at the end with a question uh, to process this week. Here was the question. What story or stories do you trust to narrate the world? We, we talked about how you may not like be walking around every day thinking consciously about the fact that there are stories that you trust to, to narrate the world, but there are. And the reason we raised that question is because, like Mariah already said, we're jumping into an exploration of a way that the church has told the story of the world that we live in through an ancient document called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed begins with these two words, we believe. And last week, that's all we tackled is we believe. We didn't even get into what the creed says we believe. We just got into the idea that we believe, that to have a creed is to be a community of people who trust a certain kind of story. Uh, we talked about how belief is perhaps less about just the ideas in your head and more about what you give your heart to what you trust, what you give your love to, the thing that you carry around in your bones with you on good days and bad days that helps you derive a sense of meaning on good days and bad days. And that's why it's useful to ask, well, what are the actual stories that we trust? What are the things that we turn to to narrate our actual lives? And I've been chewing on that question and thinking about not just my own answer to it, but the answers that we all could come up with about what kind of stories that we trust. It strikes me that for some of us, if we're being really honest, the story that we trust to narrate the world is one of scarcity. Scarcity of energy or resources, a fear that there just really isn't enough to go around, and so maybe we have an anxiety about that as we move through the world. Or maybe it means that we hoard more than we need to hoard because we just feel like there's never enough. Some of us, if we're, if we're being really honest, the story that we trust to narrate the world is, is one of nihilism, like there really is no meaning. Like, we, maybe we wish there were, but really we become pretty convinced that at the end of everything, there's nothing. And um, a lot of us are there some days. Some of us, I think, have been taught to believe that it's essentially a story of survival of the fittest. And so maybe you're one of those people who tries to make yourself the strongest, the fittest, 
the most able to take for yourself the things that you need, or maybe you feel like you've not been able to do that and you have faced the consequences of that. Uh, you could argue that capitalism is a story that narrates the world. Whether it's a good story or a bad story is another question, but that's a story that narrates the world. Um, political allegiances often end up being stories that narrate the world. Like whatever your own politics or however you think about political parties in the United States or elsewhere, if you just listen closely and think about what happens in politics, these aren't people just pitching policies to you. These are people pitching stories to you about who we are and where we've come from and where we're going and what's the best version of ourselves and how do we create that future. These are stories that are told closely aligned with political allegiance. Symbolic figures become the stories that we trust in the world too. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, this past week, I was just sort of noticing all the different reactions to the death of Queen Elizabeth uh, in the UK. And I was, I was listening to a podcast episode that explored how people were feeling about the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, it's the New York Times. They have an, a podcast called The Daily, where each day they do sort of a brief 20, 30-minute episode on one big story. And it was the episode on the death of Queen Elizabeth. And I was so struck by the opening bit in this podcast episode. A reporter for The New York Times is over in the UK. And she has the audio in real time as she approaches someone kind of randomly on the street and asks, hey, how do you feel about the passing of Queen Elizabeth? And this was just hours after she had passed and the person that this reporter approached didn't know yet that the queen has passed. So you're listening in, as real in real time as somebody in the UK finds out that Queen Elizabeth has died. And at first the gentleman doesn't believe her. Like really, like, are you joking? She says, no, I'm not joking. Queen Elizabeth has passed. And again, he sort of asks, are you joking? He's having a hard time processing it. And she says, no, I'm a reporter for the New York Times. I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the queen has passed. How do you feel? And he got really sad. And then this is what he said. I pray to the queen. She said, she said what? He said, I pray to the queen. He said, I don't believe in God, but I do believe in her. Now, my first reaction was, man, that is strange. They caught a very rare species of belief on audio, right? But then you take a step back and you say, that's actually a very transparent telling of how a lot of us work, right? Often, like, we land on these symbolic figures and their humanity, and we heap a lot of expectation on them. They, they come to represent something for us. Like, a whole story gets wrapped around them and a story that we want to be a part of, we sort of put on them and hope that we feel close to it, right? So honestly, like no judgment from me on that person's transparency. I was actually really thankful to hear somebody so honestly speak about what we often do. A lot of us believe a lot of things. And I don't just mean like the bullet points in your head or doctrinal statements. I mean stories about where we've come from and what it means to be human. Maybe for that person, what it meant to be British, what it meant to feel like you're a part of a... Um, something that has history and future. We all believe in something, and the creed invites a whole community of people to wrap themselves around a particular story. And we're digging into it as we talk not just about this old creed that we've inherited from centuries and centuries ago, but also as we put it in conversation with the new world that we're living in right now. So that's the, the big enterprise for us last week and this week and moving forward. And today we're gonna move uh, into the first full clause of the creed. Uh, you guys up for the work today? Come on, 9 a.m. Good. Here's the, the, the first line, a little bit extended. We believe in God. Now, right out of the gate, we've stumbled into sort of contentious territory in the modern world. 
we've stumbled into the territory of culture wars and dividing lines and really loud fights and feelings of superiority on both sides of a really big question about what is at the center of all reality. Anytime I wade into like belief in God, like from this position up here, one thing I want to make really clear is I'm not one of these people who thinks that people who struggle with a belief in God or who just flat out don't have one are inferior, um, are somehow immoral or like less than those who do. That's never been my feeling and I don't think it's the feeling of most in this community. So I want to like say that right out of the gate. And I want to dig a little further into what I said last week about the fact that we live in a whole world right now that makes it sort of more complicated to just own these four words. We believe in God. Now, granted, one of the reasons that makes it really complicated to own these four words is the bad behavior of people who use these words to justify their bad behavior. But I'm not even going to get into that today because that's just so easy. Like, that's just so plain to tackle, right? That I don't even like, think it's worthwhile getting into right now. I want to take a more nuanced look for a moment at uh, what I referred to last week, which is that we live in a secular age. This is a phrase that comes from a philosopher named Charles Taylor, who, um, through a lot of hard work, just observes that there's a lot of forces that make these four words, we believe in God, a little more complicated today than they were, say, 700 years ago or 1,200 years ago. Um, to say that we live in a secular age is in some ways to say that we live in a scientific age. And that's not me thinking that science is the boogeyman that's come to take away your faith. That's me just observing that we live in a different era than most of human history. One of the great gifts of science is that as it developed as, as a way of knowing things in the world, the first big move was to say, in scientific explorations, we're going to limit the questions we ask to the kinds of things that can be measured and tested and observed. That's great. What a humble posture for a discipline to say, like, we're going to limit and constrain our exploration to the kinds of things that our tools are good at exploring. Does that make sense? Like, science has a whole batch of tools that it uses, and those are tools that are really good at knowing the kinds of things that can be measured and tested and observed. The trick is when you go from like this development in human history that, hey, science is a new thing in the last several hundred years. It's a new way of thinking about the world and observing the world, and it has a certain set of tools to observe a certain part of reality. But if you go from that to then saying, and then the fact that our tools have not observed this other part of reality that they were never meant to observe means there is no other part of reality. That's when you go from like, science as a great gift to the world to perhaps a bit of overreach. By the way, people of faith have all kinds of overreaching on their end of things too. We've talked about that before. We can get into it again someday. But we live in an era where it's kind of confused that we have these tools that are good at observing a certain part of the spectrum of reality. But then upon those tools not observing another part of reality, like the realm of the metaphysical or of God, or of like a bunch of other things that don't subject themselves to our instruments, just to say that those things must not exist because we haven't detected them with our instruments is sort of an overreach and a total category error, right? Um, this is not a complaint. It's not a protest. It's just an observation. And I'm trying to help us understand why these four words feel more complicated today than they might have, say, 700 years ago. I don't think it's that we've evolved beyond these four words. I think it's that we just live in a whole different kind of world that has other tools for observing other kinds of things. Um, there's a lot of straw man um, pictures of God that get argued about 
in the world today. Uh, it always blows my mind when I read um, the kind of argumentative texts from like the new atheists that they'll often sort of really attack the idea of the old man in the sky. When I literally, I don't think any serious theist in the history of our species has ever actually thought that whatever we mean by the word God, we mean an old man in the sky, but there are some like really bad faith arguments and fights being had there. Uh, the great theistic traditions have always had more interesting things to say about God when they say these four words, we believe in God. Things like, we believe that beings come from being. That there's something like a, with a capital B called being itself that lends being to all of us. The great traditions have said things like, we believe there is a mystery at the heart of reality that lends existence to everything that is. The great traditions have always said things like, God's not a thing like all other things. And you've got to abandon any sense of thingness when you talk to God. God is more a who than a what. Now, if that just sounds weird or esoteric, I get that. But all these fights about God that sort of treat God like a thing, like a being, like any other being, really miss what the traditions have always been saying about the mystery at the center of things. And if you just feel more confused right now than when you walked in today, that's okay. There's this great theologian named Augustine, a North African bishop in the fourth century, who's this like legendary thinker in the church, who's written thousands of pages about God. And this guy who's written thousands of pages about God also says, hey, we're talking about God. Don't worry that you don't understand. If you do understand, it's not God. Now, I don't know how it makes you feel, but as a person who loves theology and studies theology and feels very confused by theology, there's something relieving about that. That when we talk about God or believing in God, we're like at the verge of a mystery that we can talk about it, but we're never going to nail it, right? The longer I go, the more comforting that is for me. But it's not then an excuse to just back away from the questions. I think it's an invitation to go further in. Now, the creed doesn't just say we believe in God. It goes on much further. And before I go any further, I just want to call out that, like, let's say, I know some of us know how the creed goes. You've grown up with the creed. You're familiar with its language. I want you to imagine that you don't know the next words. And for the rest of us in the room who maybe don't know the creed, you're already ahead of us on this because that'll make the imagination easier, right? Imagine you don't know what comes after these four words, we believe in God. And instead, you just decided to fill in what you've inherited from your own experience, what you've been taught from other people, what you've seen at work in the world in terms of a view of God. I wonder what words you would use. There's probably some negative possibilities that could have come next. Like, we believe in God the judge. Some of us here, if you summarized everything you've heard from pulpits in your life, the next thing you would have put in the creed based on what you've been taught or experienced would be, we believe in God the judge, or God the punisher, or God the wrathful one. But if you actually gathered up the, the biggest takeaways that you've inherited from all the preaching and teaching that you've heard, you, you would fill in the next few words with God the judge, the punisher, or the wrathful one. Others, maybe from what you've heard from pulpits, or maybe from what you've experienced in your life, it wouldn't be those kinds of things. It would be, we believe in God the distant or God the indifferent, or God the apathetic, or God the absent one. And if that's you, I know those words probably describe a kind of painful 
existential loneliness for you. And I get that. And it's not what the creed does next. Now, I know that what the creed does next, you may be sitting here saying, well, who cares what the creed does next? I know what I've felt or experienced. That's okay, but I want to observe what the creed does next. It doesn't say God the judge, the punisher, the wrathful one, God the distant, the different, or the absent one. The first chance that the creed has to say anything about the nature of God, anything about the nature of that mystery at the center of reality, this is what it says. We believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in God the Father. I want to hang out here for a bit. I know that father language is complicated for many. Um, whether it's just the absence or the pain that you feel around that word, or whether it's the, the gendering there that can be really complicated, especially when so much religion has been used in so many patriarchal ways. Let me deal with the gender thing really briefly for a moment if I can. It is deeply biblical and way back in Christian tradition to recognize that of course God is not biologically male. It's just like deep in the tradition. And scripture has like tons of metaphors that speak with motherly maternal images of God too. So let me just like clear this up really quickly if I can. For example, uh, one prophetic text in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, this is going way back. This isn't like, you know, some hip new theology that emerges in the 1970s or whatever. This is going back thousands of years where the prophet says things like this. For a long time, this is uh, God speaking through the prophet. So in God's voice, for a long time I've kept silent. I've been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. Or a little later in Isaiah, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Again, this isn't the voice of God. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Or a little later, chapter 66 at the end of Isaiah, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. So if we can just like dispense with the sort of fixation on the gender thing, it's, it's really clear that way back in the scriptures and also from sources like Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa and all of these ancient, ancient texts that come about like just after the time of Jesus, like it's really clear that a lot of voices have said God's not male. But the creed does invoke this fatherly or parental sort of picture of God as the first thing that it says. It strikes me that father or, or mother, these are relational terms. Um, like, like literally to be a parent is not just that you have offspring. Everyone I know who's been a parent, regardless of their relationship with their kids, whether their kids are still part of their life or not, everyone I know who's a parent is somehow affected by that. I just, I've never known anybody who enters into that situation in life and isn't affected by it. A bunch of my friends are having kids, and it's so fun. I can literally watch something change in them when they become parents. Now, the changes look different depending on the person, and some of them are really big and quick and dramatic, and some of them are slow, and they, and they work out over time. But I'm, I've never had a friend become a parent and have it not affect something in them. And by the way, this doesn't mean that if you're not a parent, there's something deficient in you. I'm not a parent, and I have no problem standing up here feeling a whole but something happens when somebody becomes a parent. They're affected by it. Has anybody seen this new TV show, Welcome to Wrexham? Uh, it's a fascinating documentary uh, series that's come out. Uh, two uh, Hollywood guys, uh, Rob McElhaney and Ryan, um, I can't remember his name now. Reynolds, thank you, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, they decided to buy this, uh, this Welsh soccer team or European football team, if you will. And it's a documentary that follows them as they try to rehabilitate the team and try to raise it up to the league. 
Anyway, you're watching it, and they, they really press into the way the small town in Wales derives identity from the team, and one of the ways that they do that is they follow some of the diehard fans who follow the team. And I was just watching this last night, and one of the fans that they follow, they're telling his backstory, and um, he has two kids, age four and eight, and he and the mother of his kids have just split when they start filming this, and so for the first time ever, he's living through split custody. And they're in the home with him as he's with his four-year-old and his eight-year-old, and he's talking about what it's like to go through this transition into shared custody. And he just says, you know, until this happened, I'd never spend a night without my kids in the house. And now, you know, half the nights, they leave at the end of the day. And then he just, he just looks at the camera and he says, it's killer. And it kills him. And I saw that and I thought, yeah, everyone I know who... Um, has had any kind of experience of parenting, whether it's been a good one or a complicated one or a negative one, has been affected by it. Now, I raise all of that because um, we're calling this old creed new world because we're actually trying to set in conversation this thing that we've inherited and the world that we're living in right now. And one of the interesting developments in theology right now uh, is, a, is a movement toward thinking of a God who can be affected, who can be moved. Now, in history, sort of the, the, the view that's sort of held the day among a lot of like Western thinking in particular comes from a lot of Greek philosophy. And in Greek philosophy, the idea is that the most perfect thing is a thing that cannot be affected in any way. Just picture kind of a stoic, like frozen-faced, even though God doesn't have a face, but a stoic, frozen-faced, unchanging God, right? Well, that's been the view that has held the day, not so much because scripture paints that picture, because it really doesn't, but more because philosophical thinking from Western thinkers has sort of painted that picture that they think the most perfect thing would be the kind of thing that can't be affected, so much so that it can't suffer, can't have emotions, can't be moved. And that probably makes sense because whether we like it or not, we tend to use the things we can see to, to shape our thinking about the things we cannot see. And for most of human history, it's been the feeling that at the bedrock of material reality are hard physical things that can't be moved. A mountain, a rock, a table, physical matter seems sort of unaffected, right? I mean, yeah, you can manipulate it, but the thing itself stays the way it is, right? So it makes sense that like for all those millennia where human beings thought about mountains as unmovable and tables as hard things, that you would also think of God as sort of an unchanging, unaffectable substance, right? But what's happened in the last several decades is that quantum physicists kept poking around on what is reality actually like? And as they've done that, things get weirder and weirder and weirder. Have you ever noticed that? You ever read physics stuff and you're like, this is just weird, right? And one of the emerging pictures of reality suggests that at the bedrock of physical reality is not hard substance, but more like relationships of energy. This is a summary of string theory, for example. Like any good physicist will tell you, this table that I'm knocking on right now seems hard and solid, but it's mostly empty space, bizarrely somehow. But if you really get down like, deeper than what you can see with your naked eye to the substance of it, what you discover perhaps is uh, relationships of energy that are holding all this together. And it's always been the case, whether we like it or not, that we use the things we can see to understand the things we can't see. And as we begin to discover the things we, we can see, the physical world around us might be a little more dynamic than static. There's also been a theological movement to kind of think back on how we talk about God, and maybe God is a little bit more dynamic than we thought, a little bit more affectable than we thought. Um, what I'm describing to you is essentially a movement in theology called open and relational theology. I'm only telling you that in case you want to go Google and dig further, okay? 
I'm also not even telling you what I think about that because there's a lot of controversy around open and relational theology, but I can't stand the idea that church would be a place when you wouldn't hear what good theologians are talking about. And good theologians are talking about this whether they agree with it or not. And, and it seems at a minimum that for God to be a father, my experience of all my friends who become parents is that they are affectable. Uh, here's another way of saying it. Every parent I know, when their kid has a bad day, the parent has a bad day too. I mean, I'm not even a parent, but I have some littles in my life who call me Uncle Jay, and I can tell you, when they have a bad day, I have a bad day. Because I'm moved by their experience. I'm affected by their experience. When they tear up, I tear up. And when they are delighted, I am delighted. When they have a good day, I have a good day. And it could be that if God is Father, it might mean that if you have a bad day, God has a bad day. What do you think about that? If you have a good day, maybe God has a good day. Maybe God is affected by you and your experience. Maybe God's love and relationship with you is such that God is moved by you. Not standing back stoically, judging or ignoring you, but like deeply connected to the things that you feel and experience. Maybe God is affected by you. Maybe that's a little bit of what it means that God is Father. Now this has implications, by the way. This goes uh, further. Um, there's a, a womanist theologian named Monica Coleman, and if you haven't heard of womanist theology, oh, all right. Um, if you haven't heard of womanist theology, um, in my very, very sort of cheap summary, uh, feminist theology, it often turns out to be white women's theology, and womanist theology is, is tapping into especially the experience of black women through history, who through their own experience and perspective have a lot of things to say to the world. And Monica Coleman is a womanist theologian who's uh, written a really profound book called Making a Way Out of No Way. And um, her work especially centers two big things. One is everything I just told you about a God who is affectable. In other words, she works in open and relational theology. So she, she works a lot on this idea that God could be affected, could be moved, could be interactive with God's creation in a way that affects God. So she works on that a lot. And then she also works a lot on liberation because it turns out that the sort of fatherly or motherly impulse of God is closely tied to God caring about the world that we build right now for one another. Uh, let me give you the scriptural example to really make my case. The first time in the Bible, the first time in the Bible, that God sort of speaks of a parental relationship with humanity. The first time that we hear this in scripture, it's not in the New Testament, it's not Jesus in the prayers, it's, not, it's way back in Exodus chapter four. Now this is Exodus, the story of the Israelites who have been enslaved in Egypt and God wanting to liberate them, right? And maybe you know the story, but there's this big fight between Moses, who's being raised up to go lead the liberation of the Israelites, uh, who doesn't want to do it. He doesn't feel worthy of it. He's afraid. He's intimidated. I, I don't know. But he's having this fight with God. And God is telling Moses, here's how I want you to approach Pharaoh to demand the liberation of my people. And this is what we read in Exodus 4. Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. That's the first time in all of scripture that God talks about a parental relationship with people. And it happens specifically in the context of saying, I don't want my kids enslaved. I don't want my kids suffering injustice. Now this makes a ton of sense to me if you think about the parental thing. Some of my friends just had their fourth kid, kind of accidentally. Uh, which, frankly, most of the people I know who have that many kids, it kind of accidentally happened. Not all of you, no judgment there. But I've been watching this in real time. 
is they sort of expand with this expanding family. And these are really close friends of mine. We FaceTime like twice a day. I do bedtime with their kiddos over FaceTime sometimes. So I'm, I'm like, have a pretty like clear picture of what's going on in their family dynamic. And one of the clearest things I've seen is that these parental friends of mine are simultaneously holding two things in common. One, like individual love for each one of these special little kiddos, right? That they can zero in and see each kid in their own need and their own desires, like they can zero in on that. But also, they are trying to figure out how to rightly order their household. They've got some rules for the house, some principles, some values that they are trying to assert not just so that each individual grows up to be a good adult, but also so that they like, take care of one another. So that the brothers and sisters are good to each other. Like, part of the parental impulse for them is not just the individual flourishing of each kid, but a recognition that you can't care about the individual flourishing of each kid if you don't care about the household system that they all live in, right? The first mention of God calling humanity uh, in, in a sort of family relationship in Scripture is one where God is saying, some of my kids are suffering because of what some of the other kids are doing, and I'm not okay with it. We're only like uh, a few words into the creed, but we've already stumbled into some really profound implications, haven't we? About what it means to be a community who says, we believe in God the Father. We're not just celebrating um, the God who has a bad day when you have a good day and the God who has a, or a bad day when you have a bad day and the God who has a good day when you have a good day. We're also talking about um, God the Father who is um, not naive to the fact that we have built a world where some people have more bad days than others. With systems and structures and policies and histories and prejudices that have created a world where some people have more bad days than others. That seems to also be like deep in the scripture, deep in the orthodoxy, and a serious implication of what it means to be a community that says we believe in God the Father. Now, one more brief little movement before we wrap this up today. Um, sometimes what I've noticed in my own life and with others is that this sort of God, the divine parent thing can be used to sort of keep us in the baby stage. Sometimes we'll, we'll bring a lot of wounds into our faith. We'll bring a lot of um, hurt and need into our faith, which is, is beautiful, and, and that makes total sense, right? We all have that, and we bring that with us. But sometimes we'll sort of take this idea of, you know, God, the loving parent, and run with it in a way that um, the fancy word would be like it, it infantilizes us. Um, as if because God is a good and loving parent, God would never challenge us. As if because God is a good and loving parent, God would never say hard things to us. But surely that's not true. If there's one agenda that I've discovered on, on the mind of every parent, if they're sort of in their right mind and able to care about the things that matter most, it's not just that their kids be protected, it's that their kids grow up. This seems to, this seems to be the agenda of every parent that I know one way or another. And yeah, all, every parent you know, have, has their baggage and their issues, and nobody parents perfectly, but most of the parents I know, like they, they want their kids to grow up. There's a phrase in the New Testament that stands out if we talk about God as a parent and it refers to us. This is the phrase, then we will no longer be infants. 
When, when we're talking about God as a parent, it's also interesting to draw out any language in Scripture about the kids, right? And there's a phrase that says, then we will no longer be infants. As if we're not meant to stay that way forever. And a good parent doesn't let you stay in the nursery forever, right? A good parent wants you to grow up, right? This line comes from the book of Ephesians, a letter that Paul has written. Let me show you the longer context for it here. Paul says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. That's a way of saying that the church, this community that you and I are a part of, has been given these different people to serve different kind of roles for a purpose. Keep going. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, there's a lot of words there, but I I hope what you heard is that the church is a community of people meant to grow up together, meant to use the gifts and tools that we all have, the resources that we've been given to grow up together. He speaks of being sort of tossed about by every new wave, right? And I think another reason to return to a creed, to to an anchoring sort of thing, is not that you can't ever ask new questions, not that you have to check your brain at the door, not that it's not good to explore, but that we aren't meant to just get tossed back and forth by every new idea. We're meant to have some kind of grounding. And his idea is that that grounding that that we receive from this story is one that's going to grow us up in a specific kind of way, which is love. And any parent I know who's like in their right mind and, and thinking clearly wants their kids not just to grow up in a certain direction, but specifically to grow up in love. To become the kind of people who know that they are loved, and to become the kind of people with a capacity for love. To be able to give yourself to the world in love. I mean, like, what a beautiful way to grow up. I think to say we believe in God the Father, or God the Mother, if you will, like to, for, for us to say we believe in God the Parent, is to say we believe that there is a mystery at the center of reality that lends its being to us. Like every breath, every moment of existence is sustained by something beyond all of the things that exist. And that the nature of this whatever, this mystery that sustains us, is not wrathful, is not distant, is not against you, is not just looking to judge you, but is for you and affected by you. To the point that a good day for you is a good day for the mystery, and a bad day for you is a bad day for the mystery because there's a compassion there that dwells with you, that feels with you, that's affected by you. And to say that because this mystery loves the creation like a good parent, there's also some implications for the world that we build together because the brothers and sisters need to take care of each other. Now, it's not just um, a sort of um, saccharine, sweet compassion It's also the firm kind of love that wants us to grow up so that we can be the kind of people who walk in a mature love, who have enough grounding to know who we are and what story we trust, and like from that story can grow in the way of love for the benefit of the world. 
That's uh, at least how I am learning to hear the first few words of the story that we tell in the Creed. Now, I, I want to propose um, a way of moving through this whole series, because this could turn into a theology lecture, and that's not the point, although I don't think it would be bad if we had more theology lectures. <clears throat> uh, theology is good. It's good to think about God. It's good to deep, like, tap into these deep resources. Um, but but I'm, what I'm going to try to do throughout the whole series is to always propose uh, two forms of practice, a contemplative form and an active form. One way of sort of stepping back and sitting with this, and one way of stepping forward and moving with this. I'm going to try to do this every week. Some weeks will hit better than others. And I'm not saying you have to do both of these things. You might realize one of these is a better stretch for you, or that you need one of these more than the other. But this week, in light of what I've just said, I want to propose a contemplative practice and an active one. First, a contemplative practice. Pray the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you saw that coming. Some of you have a lot of history with the Lord's Prayer, some don't. The Lord's Prayer is an actual prayer that Jesus teaches in the New Testament. A lot of church traditions pray it every Sunday or even more frequently than that. This is the prayer that begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, if you don't know the prayer, you can Google it. It's easy to find. Just Google Lord's Prayer. Uh, you may know it by memory right now. But here's what I would say. As you pray this prayer that begins by naming God our Father, as you begin um, with that prayer that begins God our Father, just observe what comes up. That's, that's the only thing I'm proposing this week. Move through it slowly enough to observe your own relationship with this prayer or with the God that the prayer points to. You might get as far as the first two words, our Father, and get stuck. Don't gloss over that. Get curious about it. Probe that. Explore that. That might be an invitation to do a little bit of work. It might be that it raises more wounds than hope for you. Good. That's where the work is for you right now, right? That's where the invitation is. Rather than like glossing over or ignoring it, move through it. Maybe get a little further into it. Uh, give us today our daily bread. And maybe you realize that there's a real scarcity fear in your life or that, frankly, you don't even know how to know when you have enough. Because a lot of us have way more than enough and we still feel like we don't have enough, so that's a whole thing, right? But like, you could just uh, pray the Lord's Prayer, do it slowly enough to observe what comes up. That's the contemplative practice I want to recommend. And here's the active practice. Take a concrete step toward freedom for you or someone else. Take a concrete step toward freedom for you or someone else. Now, let me just throw a few examples out here in case this sort of seeds the ideas for you and me, right? Um, I have a number of friends who, during COVID, during the pandemic, noticed their relationship with alcohol changing in a negative direction. Um, drinking increased kind of incrementally over time, and maybe before the pandemic, it was a fairly healthy relationship, but they're just looking at it today saying it's not anymore. And for some, that's meant just kind of renegotiating the relationship with alcohol. For others, it's meant saying, I think that's no longer going to be a part of my life. This is not a universal statement, by the way. I'm not talking about this for everyone. I'm talking about it for people for whom it's a thing, right? But I have watched some of these friends take really brave and creative steps toward freedom on that front. For some, it's just meant sort of reconfiguring the relationship. For others, it means going to 12-step meetings and like really realizing this is no longer going to be a part of my life and I need some help to enact that. That could be a brave and beautiful step toward freedom. Others, uh, maybe you realize you're, you're in a pretty codependent relationship. Like you're bound up in something that's fundamentally unhealthy and not good. Maybe um, finding your way out of that or asserting new boundaries there is gonna be hard, so the next thing you do is you call a therapist. You bring in a pro. <laughs> you get some help, you work on it. 
And what if you do all of that as an exercise in learning to trust that we believe in God the Father, that we believe in a God who is affected by God's children and that a good day for you is a good day for God and a bad day for you is a bad day for God. So God's probably with you if you are looking for freedom. What about other people? Just a couple of examples here. Uh, your friend of mine uh, who is really passionate about personal finance and who sees the way that uh, inordinate debt and consumer habits can really trap people. He was telling me a while ago that his best friend was really upside down in their personal finances. And because there was enough trust and safety between them, the friend asked my friend to help him, and so we did. And so they spent a while working through budget, and it wasn't judgmental, and it wasn't condemning, but it was him bringing his wisdom and his advocacy to somebody else who was trying to get out of the debt trap and find a little more financial freedom on the other side. Like, what a beautiful way to show up for somebody else, right? I've often thought, you could go even a little bit further. What if you knew somebody who is doing the work, like they were actually paying down their debt, doing the thing they need to do, and what if after they do work, their work, you got behind it and kicked in a little extra to help them? Like, man, maybe they paid off a thousand bucks and you kick in another hundred just to say, like, I don't want you to feel like you're on your own and finding freedom from these things. These are like some ways you could do that. How about this? What if you looked locally here in the city of South Bend and tried to understand how are some people more free than others right here? South Bend um, is a particular place with a particular history that has made some people more free than others. And so while we can um, get, I think, kind of overwhelmed at the big national conversations around justice that we should keep paying attention to, we could also look locally and concretely about what's going on right here. There's a learning opportunity right around the corner. Let me put it on the screen. This is happening at Century Center uh, Thursday, this Thursday, September 15th, uh, a panel talking about the racial wealth divide right here in South Bend. Because South Bend has its own history, whether it's redlining or other discriminatory housing practices, you can go on and on. Head to Century Center, the Recital Hall, Thursday, uh, September 15th at 5 p.m. and check that out. Take an active step. And as you do that, what if you just keep a little part of your awareness open to the possibility that you discover that you sense God with you? That this isn't just human beings trying to do good things. That you, you discover like the heavenly parent is with you because Perhaps God cares about how we treat each other and whether we are equally free. I think that's enough for today, yeah? <laughs> Somebody said, yeah, a little too loudly, I feel like. <laughs> Just kidding. Why don't you stand to your feet if you're able? So may you learn to trust that there is a mystery at the center of existence that is bigger than everything that exists. And as you turn your attention to that mystery, may you find your heart drawn toward it, not just in ideas or beliefs, but in trust and love. May you discover that at the center of reality is a mystery who loves you like a parent. May we remember that this parent loves all of us, every neighbor, every enemy. May we be those who grow up with this parental God, with this loving presence who wants us to mature in love. And may we walk toward freedom with God and one another together. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.